So money is, is of course, an issue. It's not like uh, I, I, I live in the street. But um, I, I didn't choose to do this work, and I'm not choosing every day from the beginning to be a violin maker because of money. But I do it because of because I believe that creation for myself and 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 I think that uh, art art would never exist if it wasn't uh, one of the reasons for for us as as species to to survive. Uh, for for me, it's crucial to to create to live more than money. <laughs> Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and in 2015, my wife Paul and I traveled to the city of Cremona, Italy, where the great violin makers, Amati, Stradivari, and Guarneri, once lived and worked. Over time, however, the fortunes of Cremona declined, and violin making moved to wealthier cities such as Milan and Venice. Then in the early 1930s, the fascist dictator Mussolini decided to re-establish Cremona as the center of violin making in Italy. He did this by establishing a school for violin making in Cremona. And today the city is home to over 150 violin makers, many of them coming to Cremona from other countries to attend the school and then deciding to stay. For this podcast, I feature one of these Cremonese violin makers. Her name is Yale Rosenblum, and she grew up in Israel, but now owns a small shop on a narrow street where she makes violins, violas, cellos, and a variety of Baroque bowed stringed instruments. I am Yael Rosenblum. I am originally from Israel. I was born in 1978. I am a violin maker in Cremona for the last 16 years. I used to be a musician before I uh, became a violin maker. I started playing when I was a very young child. I was six years old. I played for my entire childhood. And then when I was uh, after the degree, after the musical degree, I decided to become a violin maker. So I came to Cremona especially to, to attend the International Violin Making School. And since then, I, I live here, I work here, I create my instruments according to the Italian tradition, to the Cremonese tradition. Uh, I work uh, by myself, I make each instrument at a time, completely by hand, exactly like the old masters. So in your family, what was the musical tradition? Tell me about your, your parents, your grandparents, what was their history, and uh, how did music come down to you th- through, was there an, a family influence? Yes, there was, absolutely. In my family, nobody were a professional musician, but they all uh, are very much music lovers. Uh, my mother, she played the piano when she was a child, and we always listened to uh, classical music in the house. So it was actually her idea for me to start playing the violin when I was uh, a child. And why do you think she picked the violin for you? Actually, she didn't pick it. <laughs> it was the... The, um, the head of the musical school that proposed it, because actually I, I started playing the, the flute, uh, the classical flute, you know, not the traverse one, the, the baroque one. And then at the end of the year, when I was six, she said, well, maybe I should play the violin. And my mother, of course, she's a Jewish mother. She was really happy about this proposal. So she immediately said, okay, <laughs> I was too young to, to have any opinion about this. Um, Why was your mother pleased that it was the violin? Because the violin is the the most beautiful instrument of all, I think. It's the most expressive one. Uh, I mean, not even speaking about the, 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 the place of the violin in the Jewish uh, tradition. Uh, but, uh, I mean, maybe for me, because I used to be a violinist, because still I'm, I have... Uh, a very deep contact with the instrument as a violin maker, but also as a still uh, musician person, Um, then uh, I think that the the violin above all instrument is is the one that touches your heart. It's it's the most most expressive, I think. 
Again, going back in your family, grandparents, anyone else you know of or aunts and uncles who did play, not maybe professionally, but who played the violin? Yes, this is an interesting story because actually my grandparents, they didn't play any instruments because they were the first uh, generation uh, immediately after the Holocaust. So uh, we have an antique um, accordion in our family that I still have, that I made repair, and now I play uh, for, for my son, but as, as an amateur, because I never studied. Um, but So they didn't play any of them. But when I was already in Cremona, uh, so I was already attending the violin-making school, I discovered just by accident that the father of my grandmother, which of course I never knew, and he was sent into the, into the camp, he was probably a violin-maker. Uh, I don't know if uh, if a professional one or an amateur one, but just once I uh, went to visit my grandmother uh, when uh, when I was uh, for a visit in Israel, and uh, I told her about what I was doing, that I was in Cremona, that I was uh, making uh, instruments, and then she said, "Oh, my father also he used to keep pieces of of uh, of wood for his violin on the closet," and I was shocked. I, I couldn't believe it. So I'm almost sure he was a violinist. And I'm kind of sure also that he was a maker, even if I'm not sure he was a professional maker. But I think it was really common until maybe 100 years ago that each violin maker knew how to play the violin. So it was always two things that came together. In any case, this was a, a huge discovery for me. And it was really funny that I discovered it after I was already living and studying how to become a maker in Cremona. So for me, it's really nothing is uh, by accident. I just did a book that took me 12 years to research, and it was about a woman who worked for our family when I was very young, mm -hmm. and it was a tragedy. My father died of polio, mm. and uh, I had heard forever that we were in the wool business, and it was called the Patrick McGraw Wool Company. It was my maternal grandmother's father that had started it from Ireland, a very successful company, but then when my father died, that was the end of it. It was sold, and we moved back to another state far away. But we'd visit my grandparents, but it was always a wool company. So I imagined the spinning, you know, wheels and making the, the cloth. And I became a leather worker in my, my hippie days, uh, mm -hmm. 1970, and I became quite serious about it and became skilled and made a lot of leather goods. And I would go to the, the tanneries to get my leather, and I didn't really have to do that. I could have gone much closer to what's called a jobber, and it was like a wholesaler. But I love going to the tannery. I felt like I got better hides. I could pick through much larger stacks. But it was the smells and the sounds of the tannery that just drew me. I, I love doing it. When I was doing this research just recently, found out that the real heart of the business was a tannery mm. where they tanned the sheepskins and then the wool mm -hmm. was spun mm. in a, an extra mill. But yeah. really, my family were tanners. Mm. And to find that out and realize... And it, and it had exactly that feeling that uh, this is not happenstance that these patterns are set somehow. Um, at least that's my feeling about it. Yes, I mean, maybe it's genetics. Also, in my case, actually, the, the parents of my mother and my grandparents, they, uh, my grandfather used to be a, um, a, a, a carpenter. So he, he, he worked with, with wood and with tools. He just didn't make violins, but he made uh, furniture and, and, and stuff like this. And then my mother, she really loved, she loved still... Uh, classical music so it was the combination but to think that the one generation before the the person that that belonged to my family was actually a violin maker this is really i think it's not by by accident maybe maybe somehow it goes genetically so when you're playing music was there a moment when the sort of light went on that you were interested in making instruments how did that happen I think the moment was uh, when I saw that it wasn't possible for me to have a good enough instrument for me to play. Then I decided I should have made it for myself. I should have made it for myself. Uh, I was playing since I was six. So for me, music was, was really the center of my life. I wanted to become a professional musician. And, uh, and so I, I used to play all day, like every grown-up person who dedicates his life to to the instrument. And then uh, I made uh, some auditions and I played chamber music in orchestra, whatever it was. Um, 
and I felt like uh, the the instrument I had, which uh, wasn't a Stradivari, of course, <laughs> it was a common normal uh, viola because I used to be a violist at, at that time. Uh, it wasn't good enough for what was my capacity to 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 play. So the the sound of the instrument and the comfort that the instrument gave me wasn't as good as I needed to to um, express myself best. You could have bought one. Yes, I could have bought, but uh, the the level I was playing probably was uh, above what I could afford. So, and then I actually noticed that uh, practically none of the violin makers, at least I know, or the or the, the known ones, they they know how to play a violin. And I thought that for me, since I always uh, did the two things, the two aspects of, of being a violin maker, which is the, the, the craftsmanship, the, the handwork, and the knowledge of the instrument from the side of, uh, of the violinist, uh, I could use the two aspects to become... Uh, a good violin maker and that that I could use the huge knowledge I had as a violinist to create better sounding instrument than what I saw at that moment in, in, in that place where I lived. So tell me about making that first viola. Well, actually, the first viola I made for myself... <laughs> But um, it was really in the beginning, so I had a lot of knowledge as a musician and not any knowledge as a violin maker. So I was almost an amateur and an autodidact, right? Because I was it was the first year that I attended the violin making school. So in the first instrument at, at all I did, the first viola I created, the first instrument I made was that viola for myself. So... Um, I was in the beginning, so I, of course I couldn't make a great viola. So the, the part of the musician in me could understand that I didn't create a very well instrument <laughs> because it was the first one I made. And then with, with time, I mean the first year or two, I really got more and more passionate about making the instrument. So then, since then 16 years have passed, so today uh, I almost never get the chance to play. I play on my instruments when I when I finish them. Then it's really a satisfaction and and a joy to try them because I know how to play on them, and so I know exactly what I created. I can learn from it. From each violin I make, I can learn as the musician in me for the next instrument I'll make how to uh, improve it to to make each violin better than the previous one. Of course, viola, cello. It's the same the same story. Um, but I made by now many, many instruments, and except that first viola that I kept for myself as a souvenir, let's say, <laughs> um, I never keep my instruments because I'd rather them to be uh, in the hands of the musicians rather than, than keep them. Someone came to my workshop a couple of weeks ago and she asked me, aren't you sad uh, giving away your instruments? And I said, no, it's like if I have to make a, a, a compare compare uh, it's like if you have to decide uh, if to leave your child uh, alone in the house where he's getting bored when you have to go working or to bring him to a kindergarten when where he has many many uh, toys and friends so it's the same when I make a violin I can choose or I keep him in, in my workshop where I don't have the time to play on it because I'm a violin maker so I can just look at him in the vitrine of my of my closet while I'm working on a, another violin or I can uh, give it sell it of course to a musician that will love it will play on it constantly and the instrument will fulfill his his uh, destiny as as a as a musical instrument. Is there something unique about being a woman violin maker in the world as it is today, in Cremona, in, uh, in the profession? I know more women are coming into it all the time. So talk about that a little bit and maybe give me a sense of what differences you see, if there are any, or what, what's your experience of that? Well, uh, I wouldn't like to make a gener generalization because uh, I think that the biggest part of it by now is just the fact that history didn't give a chance to women to start being violin makers before, uh, like in, in any other aspect of, of life, right? Like doctors until the 100 years ago, you could see only male doctors, but now you have 
as good as as uh, as women uh, doctors so it's a little bit just a question of of a possibility that 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 were given to women but if i have to also look at what's going on now then i think that um it's uh more natural that uh, if if you see a, a woman violin maker then uh And of course, again, uh, this is just just generalization because I wouldn't like to say that that it's always like this or always the opposite way. But at least uh, what I see uh, in the reality of Cremona, where I live, is that uh, when you speak to a wo- to a woman violin maker, then then it's always about uh, the passion of creating the instrument and the art and the research after the the sound and the comfort of playing the the instrument and the the easiness of of uh, taking out the sound from from the violins which are all aspects of the instrument that many people who who, who doesn't have anything to do directly with the violin they do not even imagine that they have to be always uh, present um and i think that when it comes to men maybe because they are they are Uh, they have been for so long in the for centuries in this profession then then now for men it's more a question of business and of making um, a, a big production and uh, and it's more about money oh that fateful word yeah no one talks I, I don't know about. if 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 i did well <laughs> saying it you cut it cut it later <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think uh, you were saying that, uh, uh, like yourself, how many violins would your shop produce? Because you're making the violin from start to finish, yes. all the parts yes. you make. Yes. And you love that yes. part of it, if yes. I understood yes. you. And you're saying where a man might be thinking, I can expand this. I, I have a market. People like my violins. I can bring more people into my shop. Mm-hmm. They can begin to do some of those other tasks and carve a scroll or can yes, do the finish yes, work for me yes. so I can sell more violins. They yes. sell them as my violin. Yes. I've designed mm-hmm. them. I'm certainly supervising all the people I have with me. But mm-hmm. you're saying your experience, if I understand it, for women violin makers tends to be Uh, women will be involved in the whole process of making each violin and will turn out many fewer violins per year out of their shop. Yes. Well, uh, at least in my case, I make I have no assistance, as you see. I'm uh, on my own in my workshop. I make everything from scratch and by hand I, and by me. So I make in a year maximum six instruments, not more, six, six. I make violins, violas and cellos, and sometimes uh, baroque instruments like viola da gamba or baroque uh, uh, violins, baroque violas. Uh, but I make uh, maximum six, not more, and I never make two at a time. So I dedicate myself completely to each instrument when I make it, which means that um, I am behind each, each part of the violin. And I think that an instrument is not only uh, the... the design or I don't remember the way you called it like the project if if someone else is having a project but he has people who makes it for him I still believe the violin is not only an object but it, it has a soul also and if uh, one person in this case me uh, is behind the instrument and is uh, working on all the parts of the violin concentrating On, on the instrument and whatever it's going to be at the end, then you can see the difference and you can hear the difference in the sound between a violin which is made by one person and between a violin which is made by many people together. I, I'm sure about this. And, uh, and exactly what you said is that um, you can see many realities that, uh, especially for men, that, that it became kind of a factory Even if it's a small factory, but uh, but still, it's a production of of more than one instrument at a time, and uh, by more than one person. So it's it's completely different from from um, concentrating all your energies, all, all your experience, all your thought uh, at that instrument at a time, and uh, and I'm sure you 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 hear it. And you feel it while playing on the instrument uh, at the end when it's ready.
Yeah, I'm, I'm very fascinated by this, um, this very difference, this delineation between the way the violins are made, because then you even have the small shops that will look at the very large process that would be called factory uh, violin making, let's say in a country like China now, where there'll be literally thousands of young, um, skilled young people who will be tested and culled through until they get down to a certain number that have a certain dexterity, a certain skill level. Then they're brought in and then they're called some more because they only as, do... As violin makers or as musicians? No, as violin makers. Oh, okay. There's the same process, a sort of mm -hmm. a, a selection process of a large pool mm -hmm. of possible people who are going to work in that field yeah. uh, of making violins. But then when they finally get that person who's just going to carve scrolls or just carve mm -hmm. the... Uh, put in the lining or whatever the part that they do, that's what they do. Yeah. And they're very, very good at it. Yes. And so because they've done it thousands of times and they had a natural aptitude already that had been selected by this process. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think of as the, I guess, this word factory process would be. Yes. But a small shop, it might have four or five people working in it, still making the instruments in different parts. Is that a factory process? And, and it gets um, an area that I think um, is difficult to define, but I, I'm very drawn to the, the solo artist. I'm a writer, so mm -hmm. a writer is a solo artist. Yes. And I, I love that. I, I feel strongly that I can imbue the story with, with what is coming through me and what I'm trying to express. Mm -hmm. um, but then... Well, I think that when you're talking about China, then... Uh, it's it's completely extreme situation because it's not only 10 20 people who make who making uh, a part of the violin by series they use also a lot of machinery because they want to make the procedure really quick so this is really extreme because 3 quarters of the violin is made by a machine then you're going to the other uh, extreme which is someone like me who doesn't use any machine, I don't use any computers, anything. It's all completely by hand. And I use uh, the, the, the sensitivity, the sensibility of my hands to, to, to figure out how to take out of each piece of wood, and they're all different, of course, the, the best sounding violin I can. So the, the human uh, aspect is uh, interfering in the situation uh, to, to improve it. And there is the middle situation, which is uh, a small shop with five people who still together making uh, they're making one violin. So I am on one extreme side, and I I don't like any of the two others. <laughs> <laughs> You're prejudiced. <laughs> no, I think yeah. I think all is okay. I mean, when I started playing the violin when I was a child, I had a Chinese instrument, of course, because when you're a child and you have the violin, it's a small violin. You'll need maybe five others until you'll be tall enough to 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 play a, a full size violin. And also, you're a child, so the violin may fall, etc., etc. So it's normal. You wouldn't have a handmade violin that is expensive anyway. So it's very good that there are factories uh, in China that make violins because otherwise children wouldn't be able to play violin and if you don't start introducing culture to people when they're young then it's much more difficult to have uh, an intelligent society <laughs> as grown-up people so it's very important but but then as a violin maker when we're speaking about professional instruments for adults who are professional musicians or uh amateurs but high quality amateurs that they love playing and that they need a good violin to play and to enjoy their their hobby then i support only the way i make my instruments because i dedicate my life to this and i do it just for the for the enjoyment of 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 all the procedures of the making the violin, I mean, starting from the 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 joy of working with my hands and carving, uh, sharpening the tools, working with the tools, cutting and gluing and everything else, to trying the instrument myself and to meeting uh, the musicians and to hear what their opinion is and, of course, to, to sell them the violin and to know that uh, I made someone happy. So many, many aspects of of the making from scratch until the violin is not in my workshop anymore. 
And uh, I think that it's different uh, than when you uh, do this work and you consider it a business and and the, the goal is money. So in my case, goal is not money. Uh, the goal is the richness inside <laughs> mine and 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 the the, the musician who has uh, the instrument eventually. I think people could say in the past, you know, that's a, that's a lovely idea, and if you want to be that kind of person, where money isn't the reason you do things, well, that's great, and you need to do that. But other people do things for money. But I think in our age. Money, the very idea of what it is and what we have been willing to sacrifice in the name of money has brought us to the point of possible extinction, mm -hmm. uh, the environmental destruction, yeah. you know, this idea of, well, we need jobs, which is just money, for this particular generation, so we won't protect this mountain. I, I lived in West Virginia for many years. I can't live in that state because they're doing what we call mountaintop removal. Mm. to get at a fairly small seam of coal rather than make a mine, which has all kinds of problems too, but they just take the top of the mountain off, mm. just blow it up. And uh, it's a money decision yeah. from the point of view of efficiency. And so I think that these acts uh, that, that by intention are not money-driven, where money is a second thing but not a first thing, well, C.S. Lewis, the, uh, the philosopher, he used to say, first things first. We use that expression all the time. First things first. He said, think about what that means. First things should be first things. Second things should be second things. So a second thing could be money. It could be a nice thing, an animating force, something that we need. It helps us live. But it shouldn't be a first thing. And I think particularly in the area of the arts, I feel very strongly about this because the arts, I believe, have a function for the soul that is necessary. It's not just a pastime, a delight. It's something fundamental that we need, as well yeah, as you know, the old idea of, uh, you know, give me, a, what is it, bread and roses. You know, I need bread to live, but I need roses too, yeah. that old idea. And so uh, I guess what I'm leading with this, without trying to preach about it, is uh, this becomes a radical political act to organize your life and your and your livelihood around something in this way mm. and take the risk that would come with it. So, uh, and, and the fact that it involves the violin, an instrument that I'm fascinated by, is just even better. <laughs> yes, well, I think you can also react in a, in a massive political way, but the, the, what all of us can do personally is look at how we uh, conduct our own lives. Uh, and this is a beginning, how, how we do it for our lives, how we educate our children. Um, this is the, the, the maximum and the most direct thing uh, we can do. And of course, I'm not saying that, that I could live without money. I mean, um, also because when I, when I, when I know that, that someone is uh, willing to pay for my violin, then probably he appreciates it. Otherwise, if it would just to take it for free, then you would never know what you would do with it later. But so money is, is of course, an issue. It's not like uh, I, I, I live in the street. But um, I, I didn't choose to do this work and I'm not choosing every day from the beginning to be a violin maker because of money. But I do it because of because I believe that creation for myself and and, and I think that uh, art, art would never exist if it wasn't. Uh, one of the reasons for, for us as, as species to, to survive, uh, for, for me it's crucial to, to create, to live, more than money. I mean, if, if I could be really rich but would be prevented of creation, then I wouldn't be a happy person. I'm sure about this. Tell me what life is like in Cremona. It's really inspiring for a violin maker because we are many, many violin makers and practically all of us make new violins. So this is what makes uh, Cremona unique because actually you have violin makers in any, any city, in any country, in any place you're looking for. Everywhere you have a musician, you have a, you have a violin maker. But normal, uh, conventional violin makers in any other city in the world, they are 
mostly they are uh, making restoration or they are dealers or they rent instruments for students. They never have the time practically to make uh, instruments from scratch. Uh, differently in Cremona, uh, each person who decided to stay here and to open the workshop, uh, there are people who want to dedicate their life to create new instruments. So from the piece of wood to the finished instrument, new instrument, uh, can be an antique aspect instrument or new. This is really a personal thing, but it's a but it's a newborn violin. Uh, and we don't make restoration almost ever. I mean, maybe there is one or two people in the city who who concentrate in restoration. Everyone else is is making new instruments, and we make them uh, as as what we studied in the Cremonese uh, way which is unique to Cremona. So it's the same uh, technique that the old masters like Antonio Stradivari used to, to practice. And is there a, a sense of camaraderie among those that now have come out of the school and that are practicing? Do you guys have get together much? Uh, it's not like we get together on purpose, but uh, Cremona is so small that we get together by accident. All the time. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> And um, we we often speak about about all the aspects of, of violin making. I mean, we meet when there are um, festivals of, of tools or wood or or new inventions for the violin, and we meet in the street and we and we communicate, we exchange uh, information. So it's uh, and also I think that it's it's also a question of feeling uh, somehow. Um, normal because in Cremona if you're a violin maker you are normal because many people are violin makers but if I was like a violin maker in Tel Aviv <laughs> then I would be kind of strange I think <laughs> because I would be the only one that make new instruments so it's more supported community because we all do more or less the same thing even though each one makes different violins and and they sound all differently and my clients, they like my instrument, and my colleague clients, they like his instrument, because the sound is different. But there's a price to pay to live in a small town like Cremona, and, and what do you miss? What I miss is that uh, being a, a small city which is famous in the entire world for new violins, for, for the tradition of the, of the Cremonese violin making, then uh, it's all concentrated in this. We don't have a lot of uh, art uh, otherwise. Uh, but but it's normal because it's really a small city. Already that we have this uh, reputation about violins, it's already a lot because Cremona is maybe 70,000 people. It's like a big village. It's not even a city, I would say. Uh, so it's normal. You cannot compare it to Milan, which is just one hour driving from here. So it's not so this. And so Milan, Berlin, and New York, of course, it cannot... Um, offer the same kind of, of uh, cultural uh, entertainment. Do you get away often? Do you go to those places? I used to travel a lot for my work. I used to go with my instrument to meet musicians. Uh, uh, in many places, I used to go three, four, five times a year. Um, it's really interesting to meet musicians also in other countries and and to hear the instruments in, in different halls of different orchestras. Uh, in the last two years, I don't do it a lot because, because I have a, a young boy, my son. But uh, I hope that when he'll grow up <laughs> in six months, then I could uh, go back to this. Yeah, so at, at the moment, I, I work as always, but uh, musicians, they, they have to come to my workshop in Cremon. I, I cannot... Uh, go in and meet them in different places. Do you work with waiting lists on your instruments, or how does that work? Yes, normally it's uh, it's going with waiting list. Uh, I don't have fixed time. I mean, depends because uh, my clients are always musicians. I don't work with with dealers or with shops, so I work only directly with the musician. Um, Normally they get to me because they tried one of my instruments that belonged to one of their colleagues. 
So they tried it in the orchestra, they like it, they call me or they come here and, and they commission a, an instrument. So I make it since I always know what, what instruments they refer to. Then I, I make more or less the same or if they want it to be uh, darker, lighter sound speaking, then I can, I can fulfill the wish. Um, but still, uh, since it's a, how do you say, mouth to ear, ear to mouth, how do you say in English? People speak about this. Oh, oh, oh. Ear word, ear. Of M- word of mouth. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. Then you cannot predict uh, from where and how often people are going to to come. So the waiting list can vary from two years of waiting list to four months. Uh, you you cannot uh, predict it. A word I love, and some people use different words for it. Uh, serendipity. This sense of the the accidental occurrence or happenstance that isn't necessarily accidental or random. There, there's a feeling that somebody meets somebody and this happens and, and isn't coincidental that they mm. appear at the moment they do. So coincidence. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by that. I, uh, I think I, there's I a lot of that in I believe in this also, life. yes. Yeah. And when you live your life a certain way, and we'll get back to the money thing in some ways, because money is a, an expression of rationality. This is what we've done. I mean, that's how we invented money, was to have a rational way of trading commodities mm-hmm. and what people needed to live. And, and it's been amazing what it's done in the world. But it, as rationality, it's a process of trying to predict. It's a predictable exercise that human beings do. I use rational thought to predict what is going to happen and in some sense try to control what's going to happen. Imagine mm-hmm. what I want and then work towards that end. When you work in a way where you're relying somewhat on chance, you're in a different place. And, and uh, it can be anxiety-producing on one level, but the payoff on the other side is, oh, that's so cool. If I may add... Uh, at least for me, it's like this. For me, it's also an anxi- anxiety, anxiety, how do you say it? Uh, it's anxiety. Anxious. Anxious. It's, it's, it brings me anxious to have a predicted life. So for me, if I could know that I have every two months of my next 40 life, 40 years, uh, I have to give a violin to someone, it would be so predictable, I would be anxious about this. Okay, so this is the opposite of what you said. But I have to agree about what you said about um, about the word well, you like. Oh, serendipity. Serendipity. I, I feel that I, I, can, I, I can testify that um, the, the moment in my career that I really concentrated more in what I did and, and gave my heart and my passion to my instruments people always call me more often for my instruments. So there is something about energy that move things, even if I don't move them myself by calling or by meeting. When I take an instrument that I made with my hands and I even just polish it or I play on it or I think, wow, I made such a wonderful violin, the day after somebody calls me, and wants to try one of my violins. It's really funny, but it's always like this. Other periods when I'm distracted or when I had my son or uh, I don't know, I have other interests, so maybe I'm not so uh, present with my heart in my work, then people don't call me. It's funny, but this is how it is for my experience. I'm really fascinated by this aspect. And in some ways, the violin is just a door for me. And this is why I'm doing this project. It's this, I think the violin, by being a symbol of having this sort of association inherently with magic, you know, Mm -hmm. Paganini making his deal with the spirit world or Mm -hmm. all these these kind of associations we have with the instrument. But really in a way where we're trying to understand how to live in the world with this more sense of reliance on these magical forces. Uh, musicians, I think, are are so reliant upon that to happen. And sometimes technique is is really a way to kind of 
rationalize that process and say, well, if you get really good technique, you can make that magical moment happen anytime you want. And that's a very seductive idea. Um, when you say technique, you mean playing technique? Yeah, yeah. You know, if you play X number of hours and if you do these drills and you really learn technique, then all, under any circumstances you can stand up and this magical thing will happen that will move people in some fundamental way. And um, maybe, that's, it can, maybe that's true. That's not my experience. My experience is... Uh, you play, you, you, you want to have your technique, but it's serving something else. And in the fiddle world, often we'll go to festivals and play till 2 or 3 in the morning. It's just the nature of it. And there's so many times at 2 or 3 in the morning under a full moon, and you're playing these tunes you know really well, and something happens. It's just yeah. like something opens up. And everybody playing with you knows it's happening. They're all kind of grinning, but nobody's stopping. And it's just magical. And... Uh, so in a way, it's a kind of humility that says there are forces around us. And, you know, as long as we have a little humility and allow them to do their part, and we create the moment by polishing the violin, by yeah. caring about yeah. it, then the forces say, oh, yes. well, then let me send you this. Yeah. Versus this other way of being in the world. But, yes. And when we talk about the word, word factory or the machine age, it, it just immediately kind of conjures this idea of I can just simply make this happen. Mm-hmm. I can design something. I can get a laser, and I can does I can measure a Stradivari violin down to the, such a small degree, and then get a laser to absolutely produce mm-hmm. produce it. Yeah. Graduations and everything. Yeah. it's not a Stradivari violin. Yeah, yeah. Again, you you create something which is like mathematics, like very rational, right? When you make a violin with a machine, or when you practice for twelve hours doing scales up and down. The violin, but but I think well, what you said before about this moment when you play at two two o'clock in the night that you feel that something is happening. Actually, I think that um, I saw it when I when I used to play that when somebody is doing scales for twelve hours, then the the entire being of him is really rigid, and the music cannot go outside, so it doesn't touch the people who. Who are listening to him? Maybe the the notes will be perfect. Everything is tuned. Everything is is in place, but there won't be the music that go through the, the the person to the public. So nothing is moving. I mean, nothing is 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 passing from from the the instrument to to the public, even if the music is perfect. Uh, Otherwise, if the musician is is relaxed and is not thinking of his hand and on the notes and and um, of perfectionism, then, then it's much more uh, possible that something, musically speaking, will be transmitted from from the musician to the public. And it's the same about about a factory. In a factory, everything is, let's say, not perfect, but it's made by a machine, and uh, it won't sound as well as a violin which is made with with the the emotion and the spirit of, of, of the maker, of one maker who, who will make the instrument. Mm-hmm. So you'll be working on a violin sometime, and, and I get a, a bit obsessive doing something I'm really involved in, and then once in a while you just have to, like, stop. You just know it. You just have to put it down at that moment and go <laughs> do something that seems completely unrelated. But somehow it's not. You come back, and then, oh, now it flows again, and this instrument will become a real instrument. I love those kinds of things. Uh, tell me the story, if you would, about what happened with the uh, the violin they asked you to play at the uh, at the museum. Uh, uh, there was a, a violin that uh, someone found uh, in 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 a shop in an antique object shop. I don't even remember where. And it was a violin that uh, belonged to a girl that uh, died in the in the concentration camp. So before she died, actually she killed herself. So before uh, this happened, she gave the violin to her brother, and the violin survived, uh, survived the, the 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 time, the events. Like many happen, many many times happened that the violin survives what people do not survive. Um, it's a very particular violin because it has the the David star uh, carved on the on the back of it. And then they did in Cremona, like two months ago, they did uh, 
demonstration, so they asked me to, to play on it and they did a recording of the sound of the note because she left the note inside the violin instead of the label uh, that each violin have inside. She left uh, like a secret message that was written with this melody that probably her brother and she had in common. They used to sing it uh, to one another. Uh, so they asked me to play the violin, to play the, the, the melody she wrote on the, on the label. And, uh, and they also did a movie about it. I don't know when it's going to be published, but, uh, so they asked me to play on the violin since I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Jewish, I'm Israeli, I, I'm a violin maker, I'm a violinist. So <laughs> altogether it was, uh. It was touching. Yeah, for me, it's uh, what really uh, is interesting. Really, is that the 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 violin survives so many things, and it carries uh, with itself history of of things you cannot even imagine. Uh, lives of people, no, like houses. Just that houses, they if they are get if they get empty of the of the furniture and the people, they they become much more poor while the violin contains everything it has to have so it's the complete thing and it can go on for centuries and have so many stories of lives inside it and i think this is also something you can hear in the sound that's why we're here to hear that story that's a good story it's a really good story because it says a lot about the things i really believe in Last question. You talk about making your instruments from scratch. Tell me about the wood side of it. How do you acquire the wood? What What do you do in terms of making those choices? Because that's an integral part. Yes. Um, well, let's say in the, in the 17th century, the antique masters of Cremona, they used to go to the forest to to look for the tree, to to choose it. But... Uh, today, uh, we are enough violin makers in Cremona so that the, the wood uh, dealers would come here. But still, it's the, exactly the same kind of wood, and it comes from the antique historical forests like Val di Fieme and um, other places for maple. And, and we choose each piece at a time. I always give this example. I don't go to the shop and say, okay, give me 50 pieces. I choose each piece at a time, and I hold it with my hands, and I I do the same thing as Antonio Stradivari did. Just instead of doing it on the tree, I do it on the piece of <laughs> piece of wood. So I knock on it, and I and I listen to the vibration, and I feel the dryness of the wood and the, and the weight of it, if it's heavy, if it's light, if it feels crispy, and I do with my, with my nails sometimes to feel the grain of the wood, if it's strong, if it's weak. And also I use my... my uh, my sixth instinct uh, and my female instinct, which is even more. <laughs> so it's um, it's it's something material and spiritual that combined together makes you choose each piece the one you want. And but this is really the beginning of the procedure because when I buy the wood, I normally I won't use it for at least five years, at least. So I just leave it to dry naturally in the open air in my attic or wherever I can. And meanwhile, I work on other pieces uh, because uh, I, I, for the violin to sound well and for the working to be uh, nicer, the wood has to be aged and dry, naturally dry. So, uh, and then of course, the, the next stage is, is very important. I mean, after you chose the wood, then you have to choose a model. Uh, the model, I mean, for someone who doesn't, make violins maybe all violins they look the same but for a violin maker each violin is different and we recognize of course uh, Amati model then uh, Stradivari model then Guarneri model then whatever models we, we can because they look very different from one another even if the total length let's say doesn't change more than three four millimeters between each model um, the the model I made mostly in the last years. Uh, I mean, I'm 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 a, I'm a violin maker for 16 years, but uh, more or less 10 years ago, I happened to uh, have in my hands a wonderful violin, so I could actually copy 
uh, a, a real violin and not base, basing myself on a picture, on a poster. I had a real violin. Uh, I was commissioned by the first violinist of the La Scala Symphony Orchestra in Milan to make him a copy of his antique violin, uh, which is a Guadagnini from the middle of the 18th century. So he gave me his violin, the original one, and uh, I copied the outline, the F-holes, the, the profile of the scroll and everything. And uh, of course, I kept the models, the the, the forms and everything. And I, I did the violin for him. I did many, many violins, copy of this one. Uh, very few violin makers, they have the model to make this. So normally people make copy of Stradivari, copy of Amati. I made most of my violins copy of Guadagnini. And uh, it sounds very, very, very well immediately. Let's listen now to the audio from a home video featuring Francesco Minara, the concertmaster of the famed La Scala Symphony Orchestra, as he plays one of Yale's violins. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. Rosin the Bow is supported entirely by donations from listeners like you. You can make a donation by visiting our website. Again, the address of that website is rosinthebow.org. I'll leave you now with a quote from another Italian, St. Francis of Assisi. The man who works with his hands is a laborer. The man who works with his hands and his head is a craftsman. The man who works with his hands his head and his heart is an artist. <laughs>